Hello, and welcome to Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. Stick Together is produced in the Melbourne studios of 3CR Radio and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Matt Kunkel. Today our show is dedicated to a World War I centenary that won't have conservative politicians falling over themselves to pay tribute to the heroism of those who took part in the campaign. This week marks the centenary of the defeat of the first plebiscite on the question of conscription. Trade unions played a critical role in the defeat of this plebiscite, preventing young workers from being sent against their will to kill and be killed in a war not of their making and fought only in the interests of European princes and wealthy industrialists. We'll explore this important event, once celebrated yearly, but now barely spoken of, overshadowed instead by growing jingoism and the Anzac legend. But first, some union news. The political circus surrounding the Australian Building and Construction Commission bill continued in Canberra this week. After its passage last week through the House of Representatives, the Turnbull government is now in furious negotiations with the crossbench to secure its passage through the Senate. One of the crossbenchers, Senator David Leinhelm, raised the prospect that he would be prepared to trade away construction workers' rights if the government was to relax its gun laws and allow a new high-speed shotgun to be sold in Australia. The Victorian CFMEU has initiated a green ban on the former site of the Corkman Hotel in Carlton. The hotel, originally known as the Carlton Inn, built in the 1850s, was one of the oldest buildings in the area. Following the unlawful demolition at the site two weekends ago, the developers have faced significant public backlash. Even if the maximum fines are imposed, it would represent a small inconvenience for the developers in a highly lucrative real estate market. The CFMEU and the Victorian Trades Hall Council have, in addition to banning work on the site, called for the property to be seized from the developer and returned to public use as a fitting punishment for the developer's disregard of Melbourne's heritage. The dispute at Carlton United Breweries is now in its 20th week, but new developments may signal a resolution may soon be reached. CUV's parent company, Saab Miller, was recently purchased by the world's largest brewing company, AB InBev. After taking control of CUB on October 10, the new CEO has sought mediation in the Fair Work Commission. The parties met at Fair Work last Thursday, but the company has stopped short of offering to reinstate the workers and maintain their previous paying conditions. CUB has been rocked by a widespread and ever-growing community boycott of its products. The ETU and AMWU have indicated that if a deal is not reached this week, it will continue its campaign raising awareness amongst consumers at large events, including the Spring Racing Carnival. Further discussions between the parties are scheduled for this week. A South Australian parliamentary inquiry into labour hire has recommended the introduction of a licensing scheme for labour hire companies. The inquiry recommends that in the absence of a national scheme, South Australia should introduce its own state-based scheme. The report recommends a fit and proper person test for labour hire company directors, a threshold capital requirement, a fee and bond structure which would at least partially fund a governmental compliance unit, and significant penalties for the use of unlicensed or unregistered labour hire firms by the host or primary employers. When in opposition, the now Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews committed to the introduction of a licensing scheme to protect labour hire employees in Victoria. The government is now considering the recommendations of an inquiry similar to that conducted in South Australia. Ambulance paramedics in New South Wales, members of the Health Services Union, are cautiously optimistic after meeting with New South Wales Premier Michael Baird last week. The union has been campaigning to improve an insurance scheme that protects paramedics where they acquire a disability as a result of their work. The scheme's benefits were reduced in 2015, leaving paramedics exposed at a time when physical attacks on them were on the rise. Paramedics have defied government threats of disciplinary action to continue their campaign activities, These activities have included writing slogans on the sides of the ambulances in liquid chalk, 
After union pressure, Premier Baird has committed to improving the scheme by 2017, including bringing it into line with a similar scheme covering New South Wales Police. The union has indicated, though, that it will continue its campaign until these changes are made. Are you in favour of the government having, in this grave emergency, the same compulsory powers over citizens in regard to requiring their military service for the term of this war outside the Commonwealth as it now has in regard to military service within the Commonwealth? This was the question that divided Australia in 1916. October 28 marks the 100th anniversary of Australia's first non-binding plebiscite. By 1916, the Australian working class had already suffered heavy losses on the battlefields of World War I. The defeat of Gallipoli was still fresh and more than 20,000 Australian soldiers had lost their lives on the Western Front in a six-week period between July and September 1916. It was with this backdrop of heavy losses and slowing volunteer enlistment that the then Labor Prime Minister Billy Hughes sent Australians to the polls seeking their support for conscription. Hughes faced growing public opposition to conscription and was uncertain of his ability to piece together a parliamentary majority in its favour. Given that the Australian government already had the power to introduce overseas conscription, the plebiscite's genesis was more political than legislative. The question of conscription had been hotly debated through 1916, and by midway through the year, the union movement had already begun to mobilise against its introduction. Unions, churches and other sections of civil society campaigned hard against conscription, only narrowly defeating the prospect of sending workers to fight and die in foreign lands against their will. Joining us now is Hall Greenland, journalist, political activist and historian, to dig deeper into the only World War I centenary that won't get its own News Limited souvenir poster. Hi Hall, and thanks for being with us. Uh, a pleasure. The 12 months leading up to the plebiscite were peppered with industrial disputes and political upheaval. Can you set the scene a little bit for us? Yes, it, it, it's quite clear by the end of 1915 and the beginning of 1916, the Rank-and-file unionists in Australia had escaped the control of their, of their leaders and were embarking on uh, unofficial industrial action of a quite militant type, not just for a rise in wages, which was justified because prices had risen about 25% during 1915 for food and groceries, but because there are all other kinds of issues like a shorter working week, which in Broken Hill the miners not only struck for, but decided that they would actually implement the 44-hour week themselves. And in Melbourne, the wharfies not only struck for higher wages, but refused to load wheat uh, for export until uh, price controls over the price of bread were introduced in Victoria. And, you know, coal miners, uh, transport workers, whether on railways or uh, driving trucks or drays, you know, there were strikes in lots of places. Some of the union leaders were quick on their feet, like the leaders of the AWU, suddenly overnight became militants, supporting Shearer strikes and generally kind of taking a much more militant attitude. Membership of the of left organisations like the Industrial Workers of the World or the Women's Peace Army, they also increased and they started to get larger numbers of their public gatherings. For the first six months of 1916, uh, Billy Hughes, the Labor Prime Minister, was overseas uh, in Britain where he was being lauded as a super patriot, a super imperialist and a super, you know, warmonger. Uh, You know, he drew a lot of criticism back in Australia from the Labor movement. I remember Henry Booth, the uh, editor of the the work of the AWU paper, quipped that uh, while he was in England, uh, Billy Hughes met nobody 
uh, with, of a lower rank than a duchess. It was a time when the leaders, I think, were out of touch and, and, the, and the ranks were moving to the left. What were the motivations of the trade union movement in opposing conscription? Well, they were, they were varied. Um, the, to begin with, they, they, they argued that if there was not going to be conscription of wealth, then why should workers be conscripted to fight this war? Uh, and in, nine, in December of 1915, Hughes had abandoned the promise to hold a referendum on in giving the Commonwealth government uh, control over prices. So that just hardened the opposition to, to the idea of conscription. There was going to be no conscription of wealth, so why should workers be conscripted? There was also a fear, uh, I think, that uh, it, would, it would lead to a breakdown of the white Australia policy. That was you know, part, of the, part of the motivation of opposing conscription. Um, but there were also, you know, there were also strong left-wing voices raised uh, against the war itself, that it was an imperialist war. There's also a strong pacifist current uh, around the Women's Peace Army, um, Goldstein and um, Pankhurst, Adela Pankhurst. Some of the opponents of conscription didn't actually declare their anti-war attitudes because it was still pretty heavily chauvinistic and pro-war public opinion at that time, at the Interstate uh, Trades Union Congress in May, which took a very strong position against conscription, also voted equally strongly, almost, in favour of the voluntary recruitment and campaigning for, uh, you know, recruits for the war. Uh, and somebody like Henry Boot, for instance, his lover at the time, recorded in her diary that, you know, the only war that Henry Boot uh, agreed with was the class war. Jack Brookfield, he was the miners leader in Broken Hill. He was probably one of the few that said that he was willing to die under the red flag for socialism, but he was not willing to die under the Union Jack. So mostly, you know, there was a, there was a caution about being too anti-war uh, in the Labor movement at that time. When Billy Hughes came back to Australia after his trip abroad, he already faced an organised anti-conscription movement, didn't he? There had been the Interstate Trade Union Congress at the Victorian Trades Hall, well, yeah, the, the Congress was uh, the biggest gathering of, uh, of, you know, of unions that uh, had taken place in Australian history up to date. It was over 90% uh, vote against conscription. But there was, there was also a vote for a general strike if the government introduced conscription for overseas service, and it only lost very narrowly. So no doubt about it, it was not only the biggest, but in lots of ways the most militant uh, union Congress that had been held. And after that, as some of your listeners might know, the leadership of the Congress put out a pamphlet against conscription and the government kind of raided the printery and confiscated the pamphlets and destroyed the, the type that had been set up to print them. So that was a, an early sign that the battle against conscription was going to be pretty bitter and the government was going to be pretty strong in trying to throttle uh, the movement against conscription. Billy Hughes also had some pretty strong allies in the media. Uh, most of the newspapers around the country were quite openly pro-conscription, but you've touched on the fact that anti-conscription has faced quite significant censorship and political interference. Can you give some more examples of that? Well, the major Labor newspaper, uh, well, yeah, major Labor uh, newspaper at the time was the Weekly Worker that the AWU brought out which sold, you know, tens of thousands of copies. Uh, and very soon after the conscription referendum campaign started, 
a military officer was installed in the AWU offices in Sydney, and all the copy had to be run past him before uh, the worker could be uh, could be printed. Um, and there were plenty of people who were arrested and charged for seditious utterances, including just even insulting the uh, Prime Minister, and charged and jailed during the conscription campaign, one of whom was uh, John Curtin. So, I mean, it was pretty heavy that all the major daily newspapers in every city uh, were pro-conscription. E.J. Holloway, who was the Trades Hall Secretary at the time and a Labor Party official in Victoria, once quipped that uh, men did suffer from short and sharp outbursts of violence, though fortunately the very British weapon of fists was fairly uniformly adhered to. It got a little bit willing out in the streets, didn't it? It certainly did. Uh, the right to free speech, whether it was in you know mining towns like Broken Hill or big cities like Melbourne and Sydney, had to be won, as Holloway said, with fists and with huge numbers. In the domain in Sydney, for instance, and I think it was the same in the Yarra Bank in Melbourne, squads of soldiers and super patriots would shut down uh, with violence anti-conscription me- meetings starting in August of 1916. It was only when the Union and the Labor Party mobilised huge numbers, uh, and when I say huge numbers, I mean tens of thousands of people, uh, to the Yarra Bank and to the domain, uh, was the right of free speech uh, actually won, and the patriots and the soldiers driven off if they tried to shut down the meeting. And you mentioned um, the involvement of significant feminist activists like Adela Pankhurst and Vida Goldstein, and they came under attack. The platform from which they were speaking from was set on fire. Yes, uh, I mean they had a they had a hard time, and of course, you know, those were different days then. You know, women had to be quite brave to appear in public and and speak, and they were. They were very brave, um, and they did, did you know, in, they did get a lot of support from the labour movement. I know the Australian Worker, for instance, and weekly papers we had over the years, I mean, they had some pretty um, uh, tough and, and talented women um, writing for them, including uh, Mary Gilmore. So, yes, the, 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 they, and of course, their, the Women's Peace Army, their, um, uh, their, their, their message, if you like, much more militant, I suppose, than anybody else's, because they were they were pacifists and they wanted to stop the war. They wanted uh, peace now. So, other than public meetings, uh, what activities did the union movement engage in during the campaign against conscription? Well, here and there, there were strikes. And uh, I, I know that in um, September and in October in Broken Hill, there were symbolic twenty-four hour stoppages from time to time. Uh, in Broken Hill, for instance, when uh, Hughes announced the uh, referendum. The worker struck for 24 hours. And when he attempted to introduce conscription in October by calling up men, uh, the workers in Broken Hill st- uh, went on strike uh, over that as well. And uh, there was a general strike called, uh, I think on October the 4th, by the unions in Melbourne and in Sydney. So there was some industrial action as well as you know huge uh, public meetings. You wrote a great article for the Labor History Society and you described the campaign as one where the union movement escaped the political elite of the the Labor movement. Can you expand on that? Well, yeah, I mean, all the Labor leaders, uh, almost without exception, the exception was Queensland, came out in favour of conscription and they challenged the, the movement to do something about that, despite the fact that the movement had made it quite clear 
both in the, their uh, union meetings and in state labour conferences that they were resolutely opposed to conscription. So it was a challenge to the conscription referendum, was also a challenge to the democracy of the labour movement. And the labour movement made it quite clear, both during the campaign and immediately afterwards, that the leaders were uh, the servants of the movement, they weren't its bosses. And so um, they expelled them, they drove them out, uh, because of that you know, failure to observe the fundamental egalitarian democracy of the movement. So not only was the referendum a triumph of democracy in the wider sense, it was also a triumph uh, within the labour movement. And when I was a boy growing up, that was celebrated as much as the result. The fact that the members had made it quite clear that in the labour movement, it was the members and not the politicians who were in charge. Thanks very much, Hall, and thanks for joining us on Stick Together. Be my pleasure. That was Hall Greenland, journalist, activist and historian. You can find his piece, Don't Mention the War at Home, at labourhistorymelbourne.org. It's all nice and deep by hands and by brain To earn your pay who for centuries long past For no more than your bread Have bled for your countries and counted your dead In the factories and mills In the shipyards and mines We've often been told to keep up with the times For our skills are not needed Of streamlined the job And with slide rule and stopwatch Our pride they have robbed I But when the sky darkens And the prospect is war Who's given a gun And then pushed to the fore And expected to die For the land of our birth Though we've never owned one handful of air. You're listening to Stick Together, produced in the Melbourne studios of 3CR and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Today's episode is exploring the victory of anti-conscriptionists in what was Australia's first non-binding plebiscite. Associate Professor Sean Scalmer is with the University of Melbourne's School of Historical and Philosophical Studies and one of the editors of a new book, The Conscription Conflict and the Great War. The situation was completely unique. Uh, you've got to remember back that uh, at the time of World War One, very few countries have granted uh, the male suffrage, full male suffrage, to working class men, and very even uh, smaller number have granted the suffrage to women. So Australia is already unusual in having uh, full suffrage for both. And then, of course, it's on top of that, it's it's even more unusual to ask. Uh, the citizens and electors, whether or not um, people should be sent, men should be sent overseas to fight. The reason it happens, it really, uh, in essence, is the power of the labour movement. You know, Australia is not just precocious as a democracy, it's precocious as a laboratory of labour politics. We have much more powerful trade unions than most places around the world at the time, and we have a, a workers' party, a labour party, which is in office. And that creates a political context in which, even if they want to, the leaders of the country are unable to simply impose 
conscription on a populace. There was no need for a constitutional change in order to impose conscription. But uh, like any uh, legislative measure, it needed to pass both the lower house and the upper house. And here was Hughes's problem. And so uh, even though he wanted it, he would be unable to get it through the lower house and the upper house, even with the support of uh, the conservative parties. When Australia finally did go to the polls on the 28th of October, how, how did they vote? Well, they voted narrowly uh, to reject uh, uh, the, the proposal to enforce conscription. Um, that what most people um, have observed are, is the state-by-state state breakdown. But one of the interesting questions that comes up in our book is that we've got to remember at this time there was no compulsory voting. And so the turnout was uh, as important as um, you know, how people um, actually voted. And the turnout was uh, around 80% or a little bit more than 80%, which was higher uh, than earlier um, referenda or plebiscites. At the time of the plebiscite, some women had only had the franchise for just over 10 years. Uh, what role did the women's vote play in the outcome? I think most people who've looked at it closely suggest it played a you know, very important role. And that's reflected in part in, in the nature of the propaganda. Some of the most important propaganda uh, around the, the plebiscite is a direct appeal to women. Uh, you know, the most famous is the anti um, the anti poster, the blood vote, mm. uh, with, with sort of um, the woman at the ballot box, you know, weighing her decision. The the pro conscription result in Victoria would have been quite a shock to the anti conscriptionists. Do you think there are any factors that made Victoria vote yes? Uh, well, in a way, I'd probably contest your um, the, the the basis of a question. I mean the 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 assumption of Hughes when he went to a plebiscite and of most people uh, was that uh, the vote would be yes because you've got to remember this is a context in which there's a great emphasis on loyalty to empire which uh, in which those people who are opposing conscription are being accused of disloyalty uh, in which there is uh, censorship there's a war precautions act which is being used uh, against uh, the opponents of conscription there is uh, uh, violence against anti-conscriptionists. So all of these things, the weight of the media, um, the, the, you know, the mass media, uh, aside from the labour movement's media, is strongly pro-conscription. So all those things are really driving uh, what you would expect to be a, a strong pro-conscription vote. So in a way, it's the strength of the anti-vote, which was the greatest surprise across the country. And we've got to remember another part of the context is you have you know, the Easter Rising uh, in Dublin earlier in the year, and you have many uh, people of Irish heritage uh, increasingly alienated from the British state with a belief, why would we reinforce the British state when what it's doing is you know, helping to deprive our people of self-rule um, at home? The broader point that a number of the contributors to our book make is that it's not simply how particular sections of the community voted, it's the strength of the arguments of the anti-conscriptionists. And one of the things that the anti-conscriptionists were able to do very successfully was to point out that supposedly this was a war for freedom and for democracy, but conscription was a violation of freedom and democracy. The victory of the anti-conscriptionists became a much celebrated event in Labor circles. Can you talk a little bit about the legacy of the campaign and the competitive narratives that arose uh, from its aftermath? So, as you've said, in the immediate aftermath of the, the victory of the no case, there's jubilation in the Labor movement. There are um, the, the Trades Hall here in Victoria. It passes this motion that there should be a public holiday on the 28th of October to celebrate the great victory. 
um, a, a Labor journalist pens uh, a history um, of of the struggle, um, and Labor leaders continue to refer back to this as a great uh, success for the Labor movement and for Australian democracy. Uh, but this uh, embrace of the, the sort of uh, success is gradually undercut by a counter-narrative. The counter-narrative is a narrative around, is, is a kind of a lament for political division and social division, saying, you know, isn't it terrible what's happened? Isn't it terrible that Australia has become so divided over this question of conscription instead of united in its defence of empire? But what happens is that over time, uh, the conser- this conservative um, sort of lament for division uh, is strengthened by a series of forces. One of those is that the Labor Party, of course, adopts a more complicated position on conscription over time, most notably in World War II. Curtin, John Curtin, who'd been one of the, the primary leaders of the anti-conscription campaign in World War I, is now Prime Minister, and he pushes for conscription uh, as part of the, the Battle of World War II, and he's successful in that. So from this point, it's no longer possible for uh, the labour movement and labour leaders to simply sort of celebrate anti-conscription as, a, as a, uh, an abiding principle of the movement because that principle uh, has, has not been respected in, in the, the struggle and, and the rigours of World War II. And there are other changes. I mean, most notably, um, we, have, we see the emergence of a new left in the 1960s and after. And part of what that new left is doing, especially when they're researching Australia's past, is they're trying to oppose the view that Australia has a consensual history. And so they are looking for cases of disunity in Australia's past. That's one of the things that they're trying to do to to discover injustice and inequality and conflict. And so they turn to conscription as an example of disunity and emphasise the disunity. So all of these uh, forces tend to magnify the attention on division and to displace the focus, um, the earlier focus on democratic achievement. Um, and of course, the, the broader um, thing of the last 20 years or so has obviously been a, a kind of a militarisation of Australian history, of increasingly f- focus on ANZAC and on military valour as defining Australia's participation in World War One and, and at other times, so that uh, the fact that there was even a, a conflict and let alone its result uh, on the home front in World War I uh, is pushed to the margins. That was Sean Scalmer, Associate Professor with the University of Melbourne School of Historical and Philosophical Studies and editor of the new book, The Conscription Conflict and the Great War. The new book is being launched in locations around the country this week. In Melbourne on Thursday the 27th of October at 6pm at Trades Hall in Carlton. In Sydney on Friday the 28th of October, 4pm at New South Wales Parliament House. And in Canberra on Saturday the 29th of October at ANU between 3 and 3.30pm. More information about the book and the launches can be found on the Monash University Publishing website. That brings us to the end of another show. Thanks to Hall Greenland and Sean Scalmer. Stick Together is produced in the Melbourne studios of 3CR and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast of this show can be found on 3cr.org.au and if you want to get in contact with the producers, you can send us an email at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or call 03-9419-8377. Remember, no matter what you do or where you work, there is a union for you. I'm Matt Conkle. Until next time, stick together. Stick together.